Hey, welcome to PLR. This mini episode is brought to you by me, Evan, a hater of many things, but a lover of movies. So for these many guys, the other fellas are playing to their strengths by going over written theoretical works from history, but I don't read a lot anymore, and academic stuff in general has never really spoken to me anyway, so for my part in this, I'm going to be talking about some leftist themes as I've identified them in the classic movie, Dirty Dancing. I'm pretty much going to go uh, like scene by scene through the whole movie. I'll break it down and describe it, uh, or like the important bits, so that whether or not you've seen it, or whether you remember it or not, you can still get into this. Um, for some context, this movie came out in 1987, pretty good year, the year a lot of people I love were born, including the entire show, The Simpsons. Uh, also a great year for movies, Moonstruck, Lethal Weapon, Lost Boys, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Hellraiser, Fatal Attraction, Princess Bride, Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh, I could go on and on. Madonna was number one on the charts, that year we also got, what, U2, Joshua Tree, and, uh, and Easy e came out with Boys in the Hood, which, as far as I'm concerned, changed the game. Uh, politically, bit of a mixed bag. Reagan was the president, which super sucks, obviously. Got the whole Iran-Contra business. Uh, of course, we know Gorbachev was doing his thing over in the USSR. Uh, Fiji became an independent republic. What else? Uh, you know, various massacres and attacks and horrible, heinous things, but... But Dirty Dancing, though. Uh, this movie was directed by Emil Ardolino, who I've never heard of, but is known, according to IMDb, for making a bunch of movies with the word dance in the title. Uh, it was written by Eleanor Bergstein. A lot of the stuff from the movie apparently came from events from her own life. Uh, she wrote a number of things, but this is by far the most famous. In an interview for the movie's 30th birthday, she discussed how she included social themes that were important to her, like abortion and class division, because she thought a colorful movie full of pretty people would change more minds than a documentary. In a separate interview, she said this, There are six social classes in Dirty Dancing. There's the Vietnam War. Then there's all the stuff about race relations, and those were the things that I cared about. But I felt that the only way to get people into theaters to see them was to have them instinctively move into the film's fabric of love and wonderful music and dancing. And that is real life. Real people have to have abortions even as they're dancing and falling in love. And real people have to go off to Vietnam or Iraq. And real people are in the streets in Black Lives Matter marches. You can't separate a cause from a story of people's romantic or sensual or happy lives. She also said pop culture is good for activism because it makes action, uh, like, more appealing. And in times like these, when activism has sort of gone mainstream, I think I'd probably have to agree. I mean, I think these are issues that affect so many people, and we become united through media and culture, so not only is it the right thing to do and you're, like, quote-unquote, on the right side of history, you're also taking part in something, and you're joined with your comrades, and it's this, like, phenomenon that lives on. So, anyway, the movie opens, uh, Be My Baby by the Ronettes is playing, you know, Be My, Be My Baby. It's one of the many songs on the soundtrack to use the word baby, like a lot. Uh, it switches to Big Girls Don't Cry by the Four Seasons, uh, more pertinent musical uh, symbolism. 
Uh, we got a family of four driving in the car along a scenic highway. Uh, main character is doing a classic voiceover. She lets us know it's 1963. Uh, JFK is still kicking. The Beatles have not invaded yet. There's this like Vietnam War thing. But oh yeah, she loves her dad. Uh, my dude Jerry Orbach from Law and Order is the dad. Dr. Houseman. And Kelly Bishop, known in my household as Emily fucking Gilmore from Gilmore Girls, is the mom. And she looks fabulous. And they're like an upper class or at least upper middle class family visiting the Borch Belt, which, if you don't know, was like a series of resorts for wealthy Jewish families in the Catskills in New York. Uh, kind of like summer camp for families with like planned events and like classes and workshops and stuff. And this has also been shown in that show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, if you've seen that. I know my mom is a fan. Uh, anyway, she's reading... She, the main character, whose name is Baby, uh, which is wild, the baby songs. She's reading a book called Plight of the Peasant by Greg McPherson, which I looked into, but doesn't seem to be a real book or a real person, but may or may not be a nod to Stevie McPherson, a Canadian political theorist who had kind of a thing for Marx and was active in the 60s when the film takes place. So Baby's talking about how she wants to join the Peace Corps, which at the time would have only been about two years old. Baby herself is 18 years old, fresh out of high school. She's got that sweet, sweet young idealism. Uh, there's actually, there's a deleted scene um, showing that she wanted to go participate that summer in the March on Washington, uh, but her parents made her do family vacay instead. So they get to Kellerman's, which is the resort. Uh, and they're kind of in the middle of the hustle and bustle of moving in day. Families are milling about while the staff in crispy uniforms are frantically transporting luggage around, which gives us our first glimpse of the, like, hierarchy that's in place. Uh, baby's sister Lisa, who's got this, like, Liz Taylor Snow White thing going on, is really beautiful, but kind of vapid. She's um, a foil character, which means she's, like really noticeably the opposite of Baby because Baby's kind of cute, bookish, and like pure, whereas Lisa is smoking hot, um, but kind of dumb, or that's what they want to see. Because you can't be both. You can't be hot and smart. That's, that's too much. Uh, and Lisa is freaking out because she sees some of the other guests' wardrobes and she's like, I didn't bring more shoes. I need to bring the right amount of shoes, but... Even her mom, Emily fucking Gilmore, is like, you brought ten pairs. Uh, and right away, you're kind of like, ugh, okay, these are the people. These are the people we're watching. All right, two hours? All right, we can do this. Uh, the coordinator is played by Wayne Knight of Seinfeld fame. He is Newman. He's also in Jurassic Park. You know, the dude who gets marked by the dino with the, like, fancy neck thing. Uh, anyway, he's an important character because you start to realize that even among the staff, there's a hierarchy, like a division, uh, between, like, hand workers and face workers kind of a thing. And Newman pretty clearly considers himself to be in that tier just below the guests, uh, because he's not only allowed to fraternize with them, but it's, like, it's his main job. Uh, we'll touch more on that later. Uh, the boss man, Old Kellerman himself, comes over to shake Daddio's hand and to explain to us that the housemans are there as his personal guests. He's all like, Doc, I 
finally got you up on my mountain. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, Billy, the bellboy, goes to grab the suitcases and baby helps him. And he's all like, what? Do you want a job? What? And then we get this like cute little close up of Jennifer Grey. She's got this cute nose and she smiles and she's like, I'm one of you, man. Uh, and then Kellerman, the boss guy, Max Kellerman, casually mentions there's a dance instructor working there who used to be a rockette. Uh, so then we cut to a shot of kind of like awkwardly shuffling feet uh, in aforementioned rockette dance workshop. And it's a sea of like neutral toned kids and socks and sandals shuffling like kind of offbeat. And then there's this pair of red shiny pumps like tippy tapping around them. And, you know, in my head, at least Forrest Gump is like telling me you can tell a lot about a person by looking at their shoes, you know. And we pan up, baby super sucks at dancing, and she looks miserable. Uh, a pretty much a huge contrast from later in the movie. Uh, the dance instructor is an energetic hottie, my favorite, who encourages the ladies to, like, shake what the good lord hath given them, and then she subverts the custom of, like, men asking women to dance. She tells the women to go pick their man, and she tells them... Remember, he's the boss on the dance floor and nowhere else. So that evening, Baby does some solo exploring. Uh, she's got this kind of modest way of dressing. These kind of like matronly dresses and like a sensible cardigan. And she happens upon this meeting wherein she overhears Kellerman explicitly laying out the differences in the type of staff. Like, there's the wait staff who are, like, Harvard and Yale educated and expected to, like, dance with the daughters and woo the daughters, even the ugly ones. And then, at this moment, we get <laughs> our first glimpse of Patrick Swayze. character's name is Johnny Castle. Yeah, Johnny Castle. Looking just cool as a cucumber with wayfarers on and a leather jacket slung over his shoulder. And he's, like, leading a team of ragtag, muscly armed dudes in tight shirts and, you know, they're uh, obviously not the college-educated ones. They're, like, from the neighborhood, you know, up to no good. And the boss is all like, well, 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 if it isn't the entertainment staff. And he actually says, listen, asshole, you got your own set of rules. Uh, and he remind, kind of reminds them of their place. You know, teach the guests how to dance, but no funny business. Keep your hands off. Uh, one of the waiters kind of mouths off to Swayze and he's like, you know, you got that? You know what you can and cannot touch? And reinforces their roles. He's the bougie college douche guy. And we've got Johnny Castle, witty bad boy with sweet moves. Later, college boy hits on baby sister Lisa. Um, talking about her looks, he calls her a decoration, which is not as good of a line as they make it seem. If someone called me that, I'd be so offended. Um, and then Kellerman's nerdy, like, grandson or nephew or whatever, Neil, is introduced and he's in school for, like, hotel management or some shit, but reveals later that he's actually planning to go to Mississippi with the Freedom Riders, uh, which of course piques baby's interest in this otherwise bleh dude. Um, Johnny Castle and the Rockette, whose name is actually Penny, show up 
to the after dinner dance and they start doing the hell out of the mambo and baby's all who is that and boring neil's like uh, oh them the dance people and then he gets mad at them for showing off with each other because it won't sell dance lessons whatever neil so baby is like over this whole thing and decides to go off on her own she like pulls elisa simpson and ignores a sign that says staff only because she's a rebel and she's got seductive music coming at her from up above and she's like oh i'm into this so she she sees bellboy billy he's struggling to carry three gigantic watermelons up like a billion stairs baby offers to help him but he teases her about neil he's like where's your little boyfriend so she's like man fuck you carry this shit yourself but he's like okay fine come with me but you can't tell anyone your parents would kill you max would kill me um so she, she grabs the watermelon and she, <clears throat> the watermelon she helps him and they go up the stairs and they go into this like steamy room with sultry lighting and do you love me is playing the song do you love me now that i can dance foreshadowing mm -hmm. and her jaw drops because it's packed with like scantily clad workers grinding the ever-loving shit out of each other and they're way cooler than any of the preppy ding-dongs she's used to being around and she's like, where did they learn to do that? Oh my god. Baby's like having a full-on moment right now. And she's freaked out, but mostly she's freaked out by, by how into it she is, right? Billy says, oh, the kids are doing it in the basements back home. As in, this is what us regular folk are doing while y'all are like playing golf or whatever. Richie. There's mad animosity between the staff and the families, like the patrons are rude to the workers and the workers bite their tongues in the moment and don't seem to have figured out that there's more of them than guests or management. Uh, Johnny and Pen Pen come in fresh from the ballroom and start doing their thing and they finally got the freedom to do it and they're so happy and they look so good. They've got great chemistry and Baby wonders if they're dating and Billy's like, no, nah, there's childhood pals. And Baby's like, hmm, no, really, target acquired. Johnny and his pelvis thrust over, and uh, he <laughs> delivers the grossest, cringiest line. He goes, yo, cuz, <laughs> to Billy, who's actually his cousin, I guess. And, and he's like, what the heck is she doing here, you know? But then, for some reason, drags her onto the dance floor just to see what she's working with, and... This is Baby's frickin' sexual awakening. That he's got her rolling her hips like his, and they're dancing real close, and they're like thrusting and huffing and puffing, and once she's good and hot, he bounces. Typical. Uh, next we see the houseman daughters participating the next day in some kind of like wig testing seminar. I don't know, like they're literally by the lake trying on wigs in front of these little mirrors, which is very silly to me, but also I love wigs and would probably sign up for this if I were the kid of a rich doctor at a resort for Jewish families in upstate New York. And uh, Penny the Raquette is overseeing and Baby is trying out this like edgy, dark, straight wig, which is the whole opposite of the like blonde, ultra curly situation she's usually sporting. And uh, college boy Robbie slinks over. You remember the snobby waiter from earlier? He comes over and he flirts with Lisa by quoting JFK. And I'm vomiting in my mouth a little bit. And then he casually mentions having a fancy Italian car. And Lisa's like, oh, that's my favorite car. And then I'm vomiting a lot. And suddenly Johnny shows up just aloof as all get out. Uh, and Baby's gaze is 
fully fixed on him as he asks Penny a quick question and then he departs. And Baby tries to make nice, cozy up with Penny. She's like, wow, I think it's so cool that you're a dancer. And Penny is having none of it. She's like, yeah, well, my mother kicked me out of the house when I was 16. So even though she does this, like, glamorous, skilled thing, it's just a survival skill. She said to do it since she was a kid trying to support herself, right? And Baby's like, oh, I envy you. And Penny kind of rolls her eyes and walks away, which is probably also what I would do. So... That night, Baby goes with her family to yet another insipid event in a gazebo, and Johnny is dancing closely with some lady who people would probably refer to as a cougar. You know, she's like a lady who's much older, but she's still, I mean, she's sexy. Not that older women can't be sexy, just she's older and also sexy. Um, And we find out through Kellerman that she's some guy's wife, but... That guy only comes up on the weekends, so we find out that Johnny's essentially keeping her on sexy ice while that guy is away, and he he calls them, he's a word for them, he calls them bungalow bunnies. <laughs> uh, Neil comes up and kind of like yanks on Johnny's arm, and he's like, where's Penny? People are asking for Penny, where's Penny? And Johnny's like, yo, she's on break, she needs a break, she's on break. And I guess that's some kind of foreign concept to Neil. I guess they don't fuck with breaks or, like, workers' rights. Uh, Baby and Neil then go down by the water, and Baby is pretty clearly not interested in this douchebag and tries to get out of hanging with him by saying that her parents must be looking for her. But old Neil is like, chillax, baby, you know, if your parents think you're with me, they'll be so stoked, which is gross, but also probably true. And then he comes... And with one of the grossest things ever, he says, I have to say it, I'm the catch of the country. Or no, the county. <laughs> I'm the catch of the county. And then he brags. He's like, I took a war- took away a girl from Jamie the lifeguard. Uh, and he asked the girl, what does he have that I don't have? And the girl said, two hotels. Gross, right? Like, super smarmy. Like, Neil has, Neil has two hotels and... This guy, Jamie, oh, he just guards lives. No big deal, you guys. Uh, Whatever. Just then, Robbie and Lisa emerge from doing some apparent necking on the golf course. Of course, there's a golf course. And Robbie was trying to, shall we say, go a hole further than Lisa was comfortable with. So then, obviously, he acts like a dick as she clings to him inexplicably. Uh, and Neil offers up this kind of condescending condolence to baby. He's like, I'm sorry, you had to see that baby. And he's just so boring and rich and terrible. And you can see the exact second on baby's face when she's like, okay, fuck this guy. Where is my sexy dancer, man? But then he's all like, you hungry? And after my own heart, she's all like, oh, I could eat. Yeah. So they head into the empty kitchen after hours to snag some goodies and baby sees penny crying in the shadows on the floor so she makes sure neil doesn't see she rushes him out so that she can get help she grabs cousin billy back at the gazebo and he grabs johnny from another bungalow bunny so they can go back to the kitchen where we find out that penny is pregnant and no it's not johnny's sperm like baby assumes and he gets all indignant but like how's she supposed to know so they peel this crying girl penny off of the kitchen floor and bring her back to her own cabin and they discuss the fact that uh 
she can't afford the abortion that she desperately wants and needs, and even if she could, the appointment is the exact day and time of her biggest, most lucrative dance gig at a neighboring hotel. And Baby kind of flashes her privilege and naivete. We find out uh, that it's Robbie's sperm. Yes, the Robbie, who's also trying to get with Lisa. And she's all like, oh, Robbie will help you out. You know, he's a good guy. And they're like, no, baby, he's a weasel. And Penny says, go back to your playpen, baby. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, way to give baby something to prove, by the way. Next day, baby's bugging Robbie about screwing and screwing. And he says he's not going to bail out some little chick who probably balled every guy in the place. Charming. Uh, he says some people count and some people don't. And then he pulls out a copy of The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, uh, which, if you don't know, is an anti-collectivist novel from the 30s and 40s, something somewhere around that time. And the bad guy, or like at least the main character's nemesis, is this outspoken socialist who he tries to destroy. Rond herself was a proponent of this philosophy objectivism, which basically says to have good morals, you have to put yourself first. Uh, not, not my friend. Side note, my high school crush wrote his college admissions essay on this book, so I read it to, like, impress him. But I was so grossed out that I just was like, yo, never mind, I don't need to talk to you. So anyway, Baby pours a pitcher of water down Robbie's pants and she tells him, you make me sick. Stay away from my sister. Stay away from me. Uh, and so she goes off to secretly ask her dad for money for Penny's abortion since Robbie's no help. Uh, and since the dad doesn't know what it's for, he's got no problem cutting his innocent little girl a check. And she feels real good bringing the check back to Penny and being like, here you go. I solved your problem. Uh, Johnny sees right through it. He's like, it takes a real saint to ask daddy. When, you know... Whatever, dudes. You needed that money. Here's the money. Go vacuum that sucker out of your womb and talk shit later. Uh, but she can't. Penny can't because she's got that dance gig at the other hotel. And baby's like, can't somebody fill in? And they're like, no. Dumb, dumb. People can't. Somebody can't just fill in. Everybody around here works. Okay? You wouldn't get it, rich girl. Everyone works. What? You want to do it? <laughs> As if. Y'all. Do not shame baby into a challenge. She will do it. After some back and forth, it's decided that baby will cover for Penny so she can get her procedure and not lose a paycheck. And I wish I had a rich kid in my life with a guilty conscience and too much free time who could sponsor my doctor's visits. Anyway, the remainder of the movie is mostly a series of montages of Baby learning how to dance and simultaneously falling in love with a working class heartthrob, but she has to keep it a secret, though, of course, because it would be highly frowned upon. Anyway, they do the gig at the other hotel, and she doesn't exactly nail it, but they do alright. Uh, the song they do their routine to is... <laughs> is called Un Toro de Poco, which means a little bit of everything in Spanish. And the lyrics are basically about wanting to be able to enjoy all that life has to offer. Read into that what you want. Uh, they get back to Kellerman's. They find out that the supposedly legit doctor Penny went to see was just like some dude with a <laughs> dirty knife and a folding table, they say, which is really scary. Scared the shit out of me conceptually as a teenager. But it's a reality for 
like a very grim reality for people who don't have access for one reason or another to a safe abortion. Uh, and she ends up with this like infection, I guess, which happens to people too. And she's not doing so hot. She's like all sweaty and shaky and falling apart. So baby saves the day again by getting her doctor dad to come through because apparently doctors bring medical supplies on vacation. And doctor dad is pissed when he finds out that his little angel used his money for that and that she's been goofing off with these no good, dirty, dancing hooligans. And he assumes that Penny got knocked up by Johnny because they're some irresponsible, no good, sexy sex havers. And he wants to leave, but they don't. Uh, he doesn't want to disappoint his wife and other daughters. So he says they can stay, but Baby is not to have anything to do with any one of them. And what did I say about challenging Baby? Uh, no, she's coming into her womanhood and she's feeling herself and getting her freak on, crossing Johnny Castle's moat and climbing his tower. Mm -hmm. She goes to his spot at night and like, duh, it's not the same swanky lodgings that her family's got, but it's this rustic little cabin that would still probably be upwards of like 200 a night on Airbnb in this day and age, but I digress. Um, he's like, oh, I guess it's not a nice room. You probably got a nice room. And she's like, oh, no, it's a great room. Very convincing, baby. If you think this room sucks, wait till you see the poverty in rural Cambodia when you're in the Peace Corps. But she's there to apologize for the way her dad acted toward Johnny, all high and mighty. But Johnny says, no way, your dad killed it because he didn't kill Penny. And he's like, I wish I could do that shit. And he says, the reason people treat me like I'm nothing is because I'm nothing. You don't know what it's like for somebody like me. And then he weaves this tragic tale about going from being a down-and-out white boy surviving on beans to being an employed white boy dancing and fucking for his keep. But it's too precarious for comfort, and he could end up on the street again at any second. Insecurity is tough, you guys. You heard it here first. Uh, she tells him, no, it doesn't have to be that way. And actually, instead of getting annoyed by her poxic, poxic, her toxic positivity, he's like, you know, it's pretty cool that you like really believe in changing the world. But then it's her turn to be self-deprecating, and she's like, no, all I do is run to my dad. And Johnny says, no, that was actually pretty brave of you. And if that is not the best aphrodisiac, I don't know what is, you know? Calling bossy bitches brave is like the ultimate boner pill. Uh, so, all right, fast forward a little bit. There's this end of summer show, right? Like a big showcase, including both staff and guests. And it's a big deal. And the entertainment staff always does the final dance. And hey, we love a tradition. Actually, Johnny tries to get Neil to approve something cooler than whatever milk toast bullshit he has in mind, but Neil, being Neil, tells him they have to do it his way if they want to keep their jobs. Ugh. Afterwards, Johnny and Baby are walking the grounds, and Baby is telling him, you know, you should really stand up to Neil, but he's like, oh, no, he's too rich, and he's mean. Real revolutionary, this guy. Johnny says he needs the job because his only other option is working with his dad and uncle as a house painter. Uh, and they said they can get him to a union, get him into the union, like it's a bad thing. And bro, first of all, painting houses is not a terrible gig. I used to be a house painter and I loved it. I understand that they didn't have podcasts and iPhones in the 60s, which was part of what made that job very enjoyable for me. 
but whatever. I loved it. Not a bad gig. I wish that I was still able-bodied and I wish that I could still do it. And whatever. Like, what's your issue with being in a union, dude? Like, you don't fuck with weekends off or paid sick leave for when your other best friend has an infection from a back alley abortion? Like, what's all this internalized hatred of laborers? I don't get it. But then they almost get busted by a baby's papa. He was walking with his arms around both Lisa and Robbie, and all three of them are decked out in these, like, varying shades of khaki involved in what I'm assuming is surely an enthralling and very well-informed conversation about communism. Lisa says something like, When Vietnam falls, is China next? This prompts Johnny to dare question baby. He's like, If I'm supposed to stand up to my boss, why can't you stand up to your dad? Uh, and I'm gonna skip over the next little bit because it's not quite as important, except that Johnny beats Robbie's ass for mouthing off when really it should have been Penny and Lisa tag-teaming him, but whatever, it's like the idiotiest, piteous sliver of revolt. So now they're at rehearsal for the final show where Lisa is squawking some song in a key that makes no sense, Baby has been relegated to backdrop painting duty, and Johnny is walking around with a clipboard, which I guess means something. Uh, and remember the bungalow bunny from earlier, Vivian? Well, she's there with her husband, Mo, who's way more interested in his card game than in her. And he kind of tosses a wad of bills to Johnny to, to like, take her off his hands. He says, you know, give her another private dance lesson, which is obviously code for showing that bunny his carrot. Hmm? And she looks happy to be getting that young stuff instead of her musty old man who barely pays attention to her, which I totally feel, right? So this is how Johnny makes most of his money, we find out, uh, escorting bored abandoned women and reminding them that they deserve pleasure. But, oh, Johnny doesn't get any emotional fulfillment out of this arrangement. Must be tough. Uh, and in fact, he rejects Mo's offer, gives him the money back, and says he's too busy, leaving Vivian wondering how she's going to get her nut. Uh, Baby has been watching this whole exchange, by the way. After Lisa's song, uh, she approaches Baby and tells her she's decided to bang Robbie. Uh, Baby doesn't say anything. Cut to Lisa knocking on Robbie's door and catching him in bed with Vivian. Still getting that young stuff. Go Vivian. But Robbie sucks. Meanwhile, a bunch of wallets go missing around the resort and Baby's dad, as well as everyone else, assumes Johnny had something to do with it because... Who but the uneducated working class stud could be stealing wallets? Never mind that Johnny has an alibi in the form of he was making sweet, sweet love to baby when the wallets went missing. But the problem is she can't tell anybody that or he will get fired for breaking the rules. Plus, it would really fry her dad's cheese because he doesn't want her hanging out with Johnny. So then we get down to the big revelation. The heat is on Johnny for swiping the wallets and he can't prove that he didn't do it. So Baby altruistically confesses that it couldn't have been him because he was betwixt her thighs on the night in question. Uh, afterwards, she finds her dad pouting on a dock and she goes in for this epic speech where she's like crying and she's like, I'm sorry I lied, but you lied too. You said everyone is equal, but you meant just people like you. You think only people like you deserve fair treatment. You told me that I could change the world, but you meant that I needed to become a lawyer or economist, marry somebody from Harvard. Uh, and this is revelatory, or re revelatory for a couple of reasons, especially 
um, the contrast between this moment and the opening scene when she said she would never find someone as good as her dad. Because uh, it happens at different times in different people's lives. But like, how old were you when you realized that the people that raised you were not beyond criticism? Uh, Pops is crushed, right? As he continues, as she can st- as she continues to stand up for herself, and he continues to just like not know what to say. Uh, and it's like, you know, man, your kid is a badass. Like, you should be proud. Uh, later, Johnny finds Baby and says, the real wallet thieves have been caught. It's like this older couple. Uh, but he's still fired for fucking above his station. Baby is all bent out of shape about her big confession being for nothing. But Johnny says, no, it's not for nothing. Nobody's ever stood up for me before. It's actually very cool of you. So they've kind of reversed roles now, and Johnny is the one who thinks change is possible, and Baby has gone all Nietzsche, all, like, down with everything. Nothing matters. Uh, and Johnny puts on his best leather outfit and goes to confront Dr. Houseman on his way out and thank him for helping Penny, but Pops is not trying to hear from the guy who he thinks pe- gets people pregnant and abandons them. And Johnny's like, oh yeah, you would think that about me. But he doesn't try to set him straight. And he leaves. He says goodbye to baby. And it's emotional, but it's brief. He just drives away. So now it's final show night. Uh, everybody's in their feelings. Lisa and baby are getting along. Baby goes with her parents to see the performance. And Emily fucking Gilmore looks so hot. I'm never not freaking out about how hot she is in this movie. I mean, iconic. The opening number is positively atrocious. The yuppies on stage are singing about unity and happiness while literally looking down on the workers who have gathered in the back. Notably, these workers are nearly all people of color. Um, Essentially, the only people of color we see in the movie. Robbie passes through, and Dr. Houseman stands up, tries to give him an envelope of cash, shake his hand, wish him good luck in medical school. Of course, he's going to medical school. Robbie's like, wow, thanks, but then outs himself as the one who fucked over Penny, but tries to both blame her and slut shame her, and Dad, like, yoinks his money back and walks away, and you're like, yeah, justice. Backstage, Mr. Kellerman is venting to Tito, the band leader about how they've been through a lot together since the hotel opened, but the times are a-changing. Kids aren't going to want to go there anymore. And I'm just like, you know, it sucks to suck, Max. Then who should come strutting in but Johnny Castle? He's not gone after all. He takes Baby by the hand, leads her onto the stage to enter after the terrible singing and to do the final dance together, but they're not going to do what Neil wants them to do. It is ostensibly much more modern than what is usually going down. Baby's parents are impressed and mom is all like, oh, she gets it from me. And I'm like, that kid in Mean Girls who's like, "Mm, I want to see you up there shaking your thing. And this song is moving for everyone. It's the I'm having the time of my life song, you know. People are getting out of their seats to like dance the dance of the people. They're like, we did it, y'all. We overcame our differences thanks to white people doing Latin dances. Uh, you know, and, and that's how it ends. And there are other versions of this movie that I have not seen and should look into. Apparently a lot of the political content got edited out of this one, presumably to make it more palatable to consumers in 1987. 
The Havana Nights version that was released in 2004 seems like it could be promising, if only for the reason that it takes place in Cuba in the 50s, toward the end of the revolution, before Castro took power from Batista, while Cuba and the U.S. were having a bit of drama. It also stars Diego Luna, who is so cute. Uh, there's also a TV movie version in 2017, which, like, why? Why do they remake things if they're not going to change them? I personally won't be satisfied until all remakes are done with queer casts and crews of color, or maybe, like, a love story between disabled people or something, but that's just me and anyone else with taste. Uh, but this version is friggin' iconic, you know, it was wildly successful, raked in... Almost 200 million worldwide, the soundtrack went multi-platinum, won a ton of awards, it's quotable, referenceable, it was one of the first films I ever saw that gave agency and point of view to a teenage girl, definitely the first semi-realistic and unbiased depiction of an abortion situation, and the first thing I saw pointing out the whackness of socioeconomic disparities, probably until Titanic, you know, which... I also love and will probably also analyze for this podcast one day. Uh, snobby professional critics thought it was stupid and weren't down for the like forbidden lovers from different backgrounds vibe, so I guess they also hate Shakespeare and Skater Boy by Avril Lavigne, but it's been lauded elsewhere and remains one of the most popular and loved movies of all time. There are scholarly articles, critical analyses, even whole college courses looking closely at the themes of class, love, girlhood, uh, Jewishness, which itself isn't mentioned outright, but shouldn't be ignored. Uh, point is, if I were putting together a leftist movie night, I wouldn't just have propaganda films and like the motorcycle diaries, like this movie has a place here. And if you're like me and don't really enjoy reading theory, you might still be able to pick it apart and have your own opinions based on your own knowledge and lived experiences and, uh, and identify those relationships. On behalf of PLR, I give it two thumbs up. Well, I have neurological damage and a tremor, so one thumb way up and the other thumb kind of doing its own thing. But the sentiment is the same. You can watch it online, pirate it, get someone's mom's password so you can stream it. I'll give you my password. Um, and let's talk about it if you want. You can message me on Instagram. We are at PLRpod. I'm the one who mostly runs the account. But if you are an asshole and you want to mansplain Marxism to me, or if you're an asshole and you think this is an invitation to flirt, uh, know that my partner is also on this podcast and also reads the DMs, and we will make fun of you. Like We will flame the shit out of you on air. But that's, that's all for me today. Uh, keep listening to Providence Leftist Radio including other mini-episodes like this one, and follow us online for updates on things going around, going on around town. Alright, peace and chicken grease, y'all!